0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Dr. Franklin Thompson, professor, human rights advocate, former elected official, and funk musician. Dr. Franklin Thompson, an associate professor has been an educator for 41 years, with 25 of those years served in the College of Education at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Prior to that, he taught in the public and private school system of Omaha for 16 years. His academic areas of expertise are in race and human relations, multicultural education, urban education, working with at-risk youth, and counselling. Thompson was elected to the Omaha City Council for District 6, where he served for 16 years until 2017. Along with his role at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, Thompson also serves as the Director of Human Rights and Relations for the city of Omaha. And, if that was not enough, he is a creator and producer of music with a human relations and social justice theme, and, as Francois Dubois, has recorded several funk tracks. Franklin, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners, we're recording this conversation on Martin Luther King uh, Jr. holiday, In celebrating uh, that great man. And I was wondering if it might be a good way to start before we learn more about your current role, uh, roles, I should say, I guess, as the Director of Human Rights and Relations for the City, as well as your uh, educational work, to hear more about your personal story. And I know you've talked about this before, but why don't we just jump straight into it, I guess you have a personal story about experiencing racism and abuse. And I think that may be a good way for us to perhaps unravel some of the things that you do in community. So maybe share that story with us.
1: Yes, the first uh, four years of my life, I spent as a spoiled middle-class kid, uh, one of the few, very few middle-class families in the 1950s. And then as a result of some unfortunate things, uh, my dad and and my uh, mother split And as a result, uh, the father got the two boys, and he tried to raise us. He couldn't, and so he married a Gullah woman from South Carolina, dropped us off there, left, and overnight we went from middle class to stark poverty. Overnight it was a culture shock. And ever since then, uh, age uh, six, I've struggled with... uh, uh, issues of poverty, issues of racism. Uh, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, the the Klan was visible. I mean, they just ran up and down the street as if they owned everything. When I first went there, I was shocked to see in the first grade uh, uh, black people stepping off of a sidewalk to let white people walk by. And then, of course, when they walked by, they got back on the sidewalk. And, and this was after uh, Brown decision, but in the South, uh, uh, the people down there told the government up yours. We don't care what the Supreme Court says. So uh, uh, we, I saw it up front, uh, close, and I saw poverty up front and close, too. Uh, there were times when I had to stay home from school, all black schools. Uh, we could go for miles and miles and not even see white people and um, uh, stay home from school because we didn't have shoes. Uh, often, I would say at least, uh, well, probably 60 to 70% of the time, we didn't have lunch or lunch money either. So um, uh, from that background, uh, my creator decided to fashion me uh, in, in the mold of a, of a, of a change agent. And very early on, um, I uh, took on the beliefs of uh, Martin Luther King the most, but also Malcolm X too. And it shaped me. And when we moved from the rural South up to Omaha, Nebraska, um, uh, it was another culture shock. (laughs) Uh, First of all, uh, down south, the all-black schools were great schools, and we, we learned a lot from the all-black teachers. When I moved up to Omaha, uh, I was easily a grade or two ahead of everybody, and the school system up north was actually worse. And um, the turmoil and, and the stress and tension between white and black was more on, in the open, because in the South, you, you just stay in your place and you don't cross the tracks. But here, um, there was there's quite a bit of uh, tension, white-black tension during the 60s. And uh, so, uh, I experienced the, the uh, riots on 24th Street. And I also um, uh, went to Tech High School Uh, as an 8th grader all the way up to the 12th grade. And it was a school that uh, was the center of activism for Omaha, Nebraska. Um, A lot of people think that uh, the black power movement in Nebraska was all driven by adults. That's not true. Uh, I would say 50 to 60% of it was driven by students. And those students happened to be con- concentrated in one main school, and that was uh, Omaha Tech High School. By the time I graduated, when I first went there as a as a uh, eighth grader, the school was about forty percent white. Uh, by the time I became uh, a senior in 1972, 71, 72, uh, it was the school was 96 percent black. Not only 90 percent black, but also the students who did not make it at the other schools. So if you didn't make it at Central, if you didn't make it at Tech, Benson, South, your last stop before you dropped out of school or went to Juvenile Hall was Tech High School. It was a forgotten school. It was a school where um, everything that you could do to, to uh, um, uh, forget a group of people uh, you did. they They threw all of the special ed for the whole district into just that one building. Um, today you you see schools today that will have two, three at the most four security guards. In my senior year, we had twenty nine security guards.
0: Are you able to look back and identify one or a series of specific incidences or emotional responses or circumstances? in those very formative years that you've been describing that perhaps have lasted you throughout a lifetime and and have prompted you to become this change agent, uh, this continual change agent that you mentioned, uh, that you had become, not least through the influence of larger figures such as Malcolm X and, and of course, Martin Luther King Jr., Mm -hmm. Um, but those personal incidents that that you encountered.
1: Uh, Do you want grade school, junior high, or high school? (laughs)
0: Why don't you, um, I'm going to let you select, but mainly those ones that really perhaps speak to you, that inform you, um, even today.
1: Sadly to say, uh, I've been informed quite often. Too much. (laughs) (laughs) Very little bit has not informed me. I do believe uh, if I went back to my early, early years, the uh, learning about the Gullah culture was fascinating, the Gullah people are the last; they're descendants of the last slaves that were brought over. And um, slave owners used to have conventions, and when you go to conventions, you go to these breakout sessions. And one of the breakout sessions was how do we uh, keep our bondsmen, uh, you know, dumb and stupid, and, and keep them from rebelling? Well, somebody came up with a great idea that we'll, we'll go over to Africa get group of slaves and this time we won't split them up. We're going to keep them together and then by keeping them together they don't learn the wily ways or the resistant ways of the other blacks and these were the the Gullah people and so um, they are the most de-Africanized group that came to America and as a result uh, their culture and their language stayed more intact compared to uh, other blacks that had been, their families had been here a long time. Uh, for example, I remember my grandmother saying, "Boy, best stop Chuckney rock down over that window, make me ramble mama about these things a box three dollar chibunki, ya me boy." And when I first heard that, I was thinking, "Did we move to Jamaica?" <laughs> you know, and uh, no, it was America. And basically what she was saying, stop throwing rocks or you hit your brother in the eye. And if you keep making me repeat this, I'm going to give you a very hard spanking. Well, uh, me, the northerner that didn't know better, I looked at my new grandmother and I said, you speak funny. And next thing I knew, I was on the ground laid out from a punch, a right, a right you know, cross from my grandmother. So it's welcome to a new world, uh, new rules. Um I went from having uh three meals a day and being spoiled at Christmas time to stark poverty. I mean, there were times when when um the only time we would eat is if my uncle would take a twenty two and go out and shoot a rabbit then my grandmother would skin it and that would be our meal you know so that made a very a lasting impression on me um. Coming to Omaha, probably another thing that uh, made a lasting impression upon me was uh, a different sense of pride up north than it was down south. In the south, we didn't have much, but we were extremely proud. And um, we we didn't... Um, Look for someone else or the or the government to to save us. We just we made do. And a lot of the times we didn't even know that we didn't have it. We just it was just a way of life. Um, coming up north, I found a whole different set of rules. It was a uh, the set of rule uh, that said, um, you owe me and until you owe me, I'm going to frown. I'm going to. Uh, picket, I'm going to riot. And and it was also during a time when blacks were emboldened to physically attack whites. So it wasn't unusual for me to find uh, a a white kid who, for example, today, I guess we would use the phrase an opie, you know, someone (laughs) who's kind of square and maybe not, you know, very... uh, wise to the world's ways, beat him up, break his nose, take his money, and then you know, and the kid's nose is bleeding and and the kids who beat them up didn't get suspended or anything. So it was it was another cultural shock, uh, just a shock for me to see the lack of wanting to do homework because of anger. And understandably so now, you know, now that I'm older, I can look back and analyze those things properly. But as a kid, I had been told that education was the way out. Coming up north, revolution was the way out. And so um, it became a, a situation where then I got labeled as an OP or I got labeled as an Uncle Tom, or I got labeled as a weirdo, or they even one of my nicknames was a white boy, okay? <laughs> so, uh, again, I understand all those things now within the psychological and sociological mindset, but back then it was just confusing to me. But I did learn a lot. I learned a lot from the Omaha culture, and the urban northern culture helped shape my views too. It's, in fact, that was when I first started understanding the life of Malcolm X. It was when I came north.
0: Given some of the wisdom and the experiences that you've, you've talked about and the wisdom that you've accrued over time, if you have a different lens now on something like the Black Lives Movement.
1: The Black Lives Movement is a result of America's inability to problem solve. Every there's a lot of things in America that's like drive-through Burger King mentality. So you solve problems by driving through, you get a hamburger or a cheeseburger and milkshake, you put it down, boom, it's supposed to solve everything. Or you lock arms and you sing Kumbaya, boom, you know. And, and those quick fixes don't work. And America, for a long time, has tried to solve a very complex issue with quick fixes. So, the kids now are starting to say, "Hell, no, we've got more pain and more problems than you' re- that you're that you're recognizing, and um we're going to have a grassroots movement and and we don't need a Malcolm or a martin to tell us we're going we're talking to each other, and we're going to be the movement." and so yes, um. Blacks are profiled. I was profiled when I was a child. And that's one of the... You talked earlier about an incident that stuck in in my mind. One of them was being profiled. And so... um, And and can you imagine me, a nerdy, opie, book-carrying guy being profiled by the police? Obviously, blacks get profiled if I'm going to get profiled, okay? (laughs) But... um, uh, the the Black Lives Matter movement is authentic. It's genuine. It it's addressing issues that everybody want to candy coat, sugar coat, and kind of brush it away. And uh, young people that are there say no, we're we're going to bring this out, and and we will have on our terms a different solution.
0: Does it feel disappointing for you to think that? You have experienced a life where you have firsthand had um, these encounters and you have witnessed and been a part of trying to make change for the better of humanity. And yet this moral arc perhaps doesn't seem to have been as far as um, we would have liked it given that we're 50 years on from uh, Martin Luther King's assassination.
1: I, I blame two things. Um, I blame the fact that our problem-solving method is a little weak. It has a magical, magic dust quality to it. And you don't solve deep problems with magic dust. You don't solve cancer with a Band-Aid, okay? But I also uh, uh, blame the power structure in that um, power and privilege is what has to be addressed. And you can take money all the time, every day, and give some grant for this or some grant for that and kind of piecemeal North Omaha together but until you get to the bottom issue and the bottom issue is power and privilege you we have to deprogram and reprogram on the north side and then we have to empower them with financial stability the same way that you take $20 and you go to South Omaha and you go to those mom and pop stores and you pull your 20 out and you say, I want 10 of these. That's what North Omaha needs. We need people from all over Omaha, including West Omaha, to come to North Omaha, pull their money out and say, give me 10 of these. And until that happens, it's just window dressing. We, we Housing is fine. I appreciate the new housing but we have to have economic development in North Omaha. Some leaders will only talk about housing, will only talk about whether or not they can get a school you know, loan. But what about that cultural-slash-spiritual poverty, the one that makes uh, male rappers refer to their girlfriends as female dogs and, and garden utensils? That's part of the poverty, too. 360 degree freedom is better than half behind freedom and um, I'm having a hard time right now getting people to listen to that message
0: but I'm not wrong. So this is the perfect segue we are later in the show going to talk more in depth about your music pedigree but for now what track that you have created uh, in your time, would you recommend that we play for listeners to illustrate um, both your talent, but also the message that you've been talking about?
1: Uh, I have a a CD, have several CDs out. The one that I'd like to highlight today, I'll highlight others at another time, but this one's called Freedom Fighter, and the title track is, is track 10, Freedom Fighter, and in that song, it actually has specific quotes from uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, uh, Muhammad Ali, different people, uh, Marcus Garvey. And it, it, sh- it kind of shows that, that, that picture of needing the total freedom. So we're going to hear that now. Okay. And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican. I
0: speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. I would remind all Americans at this hour of the words of Abraham Lincoln, a house divided cannot stand.
1: I should battle rape and kill my mother and father. Well, i gonna shoot them for what? How am I gonna shoot them?
0: Favor in man. Oh.
1: so that his behaviour pattern toward non-whites will change and the black man in this country also needs to be re-educated so our behaviour pattern and attitude toward ourselves will change. You can't legislate brotherhood.
0: Do you ever listen back to uh, the music that you produce, the message that, that you incorporate therein, and think, given that Freedom Fighter was originally recorded in 1983, which is a good while ago now, do you ever get embarrassed looking back to your creative works? Or do you want to maybe update them in some way? Uh, do you, have you ever re-recorded that in a different way? Um,
1: this, the, those songs are locked in time. And they have the old technology, and uh, not so it's done more live than today is more programmed music. And so I'm a purist when it comes to the old school style, and I, I don't I purposely want our young people to kind of know a little bit of history about that old style. Um, I was very influenced by Preston Love, Sr. And the horn player on that song that you just heard is is um, uh, one of the Love sons, uh, Norman Love. And also, I like to say that Nate Bray, an old school bass player who's one of the best players uh, in the state, is uh, co-wrote that song. So we, the old school, you know, musicians, we're purposely trying to push, let the old sound sound old because it, it's there's a certain quality and there's a certain message that we're trying to give the young people. Um, I do have social justice music that's newer sounding and that is programmed and it's not, you know, live, played and whatever. So rather than change the old, I let the old stay as it is and then write some of the new stuff so that the younger generation can... can uh, relate to it.
0: we'll explore your musical pedigree a little bit more later, but for now, let me ask you to talk more about your role as the Director of Human Rights and Relations for the city. Yes. Um, We have four basic
1: uh, missions. One is that if you have uh, some kind of complaint, it can be uh, employment, it can be public accommodations, or it can be housing. And, And you want to open a case and to find out, is, is there any help or remediation you can get? Uh, we, are the, we are the department where you, you start it, you start the process there. We don't do the awarding, we don't do the adjudication, but we make a decision, a discernment as to whether or not you truly have a case. If you do, then we, we give you all the, the elements you need to take it to the next step. Oftentimes, it doesn't even go to court. However, it's settled outside of court. So that's, that's one thing we do. The second thing we do is um, what we call uh, economic development. And what we're trying to do is to say, if we have these contracts, when the city builds this building or that building or does street work, that a part of that work has to go to uh, what we call disadvantaged businesses. Long time ago, that was based on race. Now it's based on, on uh, social status. So we try to then have set asides, but the set asides again are not based on race. Uh, Nebraska in 2009 decided that it was anti-affirmative action. We are one of the eight states in the union that did away with that, and uh, which I don't think was the right thing to do, but. Uh, we found a way around it, and so we look at economic disadvantage. And there is usually a high correlation between uh, disadvantage and, and race and ethnicity. The, th- the third thing we do is uh, education. And we go out and we, we uh, try to uh, give forums and, and symposiums. And, and it might be on housing issues, but it could also just be on uh, black history. I'm always open to speak at any school, any group, any church, and when I do speak, it doesn't have to necessarily be about uh, a discrimination case. It can be about uh, stuff that you and I have been talking about all day. And then we also have another uh, piece where we're, we're trying to uh, do a better job of uh, outreach, where uh, not too many people use our services. Uh, it's used, but not compared to our sister cities. Uh, I believe we're underutilized, and so we want to get the message out there, PR, uh, good
0: advertising, and uh, let people know what it is we do. It would seem to me that given some of the issues that we've been talking about around race relations, a long history of prejudice and uh, dare I say, a continuing, uh, if not expanding legacy of that under the current um, federal administration. The, the potential for a department that is focused upon human rights is really quite vast. And I wonder if you could rewrite the rules for that department or office if, if you would expand it in some way. And if, if you could, what would you want to do?
1: One area that we could expand and uh, take on would be uh, homelessness. We, we have sub de- sub-zero degree weather out there right now. And people have, they can't sleep under a bridge or whatever, and they're driven inside. But if you go to the Open Door Mission, Francis House, different places like that, uh, they're standing room only. So uh, that would be in line with Martin Luther King's thinking and uh that would be an area of growth if we wanted to expand
0: how do you see the state of human rights in uh locally or 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 more broadly
1: bifurcated <laughs> it is like we live in two americas simultaneously and you almost want you're waiting for rod serling to go you know you've entered the twilight zone um Just because I'm a uh, Republican doesn't mean I put up with foolishness. And right now I'm hearing a whole lot of foolishness come out of Washington, D.C. I think we need a big change from uh, the national point of view. Uh, Locally, I'll do what I can to make sure that uh, human rights and human relations and common sense uh, is put above political party and political shenanigans but uh, ironically enough my department which had 22 people in the year 1996 was cut down to five people and the two mayors that cut it were Democrats <laughs> the, the, the irony never ceases and and some of the stories that I have to tell and, and then, again, ironically, this mayor decided to pour money back into it and build it back up. So what it lets me know is that in order to make America great, in order to do things, we're going to need not both parties, but we're going to need the critical thinkers in both parties to come together. Uh, the parties, it's a broken system, but I do believe that there are critical thinkers within both parties. And when you put those two together, then I think you can get some some movement.
0: So I I want to ask you a difficult question. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to ask this in part because of some of the things you've been saying about rising above the labels, because you've already identified the fact that as an African-American, as a Republican, you're in a minority in the sense of being a Republican and African-American. You also talked a little bit about, um, I think, this bifurcation in some ways between your experience uh, with the South and the North Mm -hmm. uh, as you were being raised. And I know that... um, I can remember being at City Hall when the LGBTQ anti-discrimination ordinance was first up. Mm -hmm. And I remember that, notwithstanding that at that time you voted against it as an elected official on the city council, but you clearly spoke about being deeply troubled Mm -hmm. by um, having to address that and balancing various equations. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if... Notwithstanding this critical thinking you've talked about Mm -hmm. within yourself, Mm -hmm. if you have found it difficult to exist in a society with multiple points of view approaching situations from different perspectives, if notwithstanding your attempts to do that, you constantly find yourself labelled and having to struggle to move the needle because you are perpetually boxed in in some way. Uh, that's sort of like three questions in one, but I think
1: I'll try to... It wasn't really it. a question, was it? it was more just a-
0: <laughs>
1: I'll try to address each one. Uh, the initial LGBT vote, I voted uh, abs- to abstain. I wanted it to be on the ballot. The second one, I wanted to vote yes for it, but I didn't get the compromise I wanted. Uh, what what they ended up doing, uh, Stuart, is they took out housing but they kept in the phrase uh, uh, perceived identity. And I felt they should have did the other way around. I think we should have kept housing in and then taken out perceived identity. If you go down to the state Unicam you know, right now, this, the same bill is there and guess what's not in there? Perceived identity. So, um, you know, they call it politics for a reason. And... I have the two, the three top churches in town that were against that were all in my district. And believe me, they were pulling at my coattail saying, uh, Franklin, you're gonna, you're the last bastion of hope to save Christianity. So, wow, talk about being in the middle of a firestorm, both, both sides pulling. Um, having looked back, however, I probably the biggest mistake I made is that i didn't I didn't uh, separate church and state, and I should have. Today I do. So that vote comes up today. Clearly, I vote for it, and I'm not afraid to to go on record as saying that that was a vote that I wish I could do over. Um, I will also say that the LGBT leadership at that time, uh, made mistakes too. The big thing that the big mistake that they made is that they mixed too many things together. For example, no one came to me ahead of time and said, "We need you, Franklin." It just showed up. the the uh, The proposition, the, the 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 ordinance showed up out of the clear blue sky, and then they gave me three weeks to try and undo six thousand years of Judeo-Christian behavior. So I said, well, why? Well, it became clear because it wasn't just Franklin, we need your vote. It was Franklin, all black people better do it. And if they don't, then they're bad. Franklin, all black people are Democrats. Something's wrong with you. There was too many, they needed to separate that out. And then had they uh, approached me the correct way, They would have actually gotten my vote the first time. What am I saying to you? I'm saying that I let the personal feelings that I had about some of the attacks on me being a Republican, I let that take too much of a precedence. And leaders don't do that. Leaders put the personal to the side, even when they're getting beat up. I should have been big enough, even though I was being dogged out, I still should have been big enough to put that aside and, and and vote what I should have voted and separate church and state. I'm at the point now where I can make that bridge, and I am, I do consider myself, a um, an ally of the LGBT community. Now, they may not want me, but I am an ally. To the point where if they came to me and asked me to put housing in, which should have never been taken out to begin with, I would support that. So that's one story. Now, the other story that you talked about is always having to be in between these, these power moves and being kind of misunderstood or misrepresented. Um, 16 years in the council and neither party liked me and neither party supported me. Republicans thought that I was uh, Republican in name only, which they call a rhino. And white uh, Democrats thought that I had lost my mind, that somehow, uh, you know, I had lost my way. And black Democrats thought that I was an Uncle Tom fill in the blank. <laughs> so uh, I've, I've had an, one of the most interesting live political lives and that I've able to survive almost in a silo in fact I have a line on one of my songs that says that I am America's best solo dancer but at the same time I'm never never going to go away from the Martin Luther King point of view which is you have to rise above the party, rise above the label, rise above, you know, the things that keep us separated. And occasionally I'll make a mistake. I should have voted yes on an LGBT um, vote. And, um, but I'm an ally now, and, and I will be an effective ally.
0: Well, this seems like the perfect time, I think, to play solo dancing. But in front of me, I have two choices. One is the American Island mix, or the other is the Solo remix. <laughs> so, w- where do we go with this one, Franklin? Let's go with uh, part one. Okay, so that is the American Island mix. Let's hear that. Franklin like, looking in the man, said he of that,
1: said he the density
0: Why did that one particularly speak to you in this moment? You mentioned some, some lyrics in there that we would have uh, yes. uh, just heard, but also that particular mix too, given mm-hmm. that you have two mixes. Um,
1: I've been a solo dancer all my life. When I was in grade school, um, I used to watch the news, and then the neighborhood kids in the back country would say that I was acting white, uh, that I was acting weird. Um, when I came up north, went to Tech High School. Uh, I I wasn't smoking marijuana. I was getting good grades, straight A's. I wasn't trying to be like Super Fly or Goldie from the Mac and and all of that ridiculous black black exploitation stuff. And then again, uh, I was uh, you know, the nickname there was Church Mouse or Poop Bud or whatever. And then when I when I was In the Democratic Party for a long time, all the way up to 1999, Democrats said to me, you're too conservative to be a Democrat. And I had heard that one too many times. And so I said, well, then I guess I'll go be a Republican. The only problem there is that I don't fit in the Republican Party either. (laughs) Um, There's too much exclusion and too much uh, bombastic conversation and So I don't belong there either. Um, I still have that R behind my name, but uh, basically speaking, um, I'm an independent. And and I'm always, it always seems like I'm about 30 years ahead of my time. I know that sounds a little egotistical, but no, I'm serious about that. There are things that are happening now that I predicted 30 years ago and people thought I was crazy. But maybe my gift is my curse. I don't know. All I know is that I've always been out in the dry areas, like a desert, with very little water, very little friends, very little support. And But I keep making it, and I keep succeeding. So I, I, in my mind, I think my higher power is, is uh, creating that success for me.
0: I don't know if you are aware. I have been told that you musically have a cult following.
1: (laughs) The cult started uh, in California. Uh, Chris Manick, also known as Peanut Butter Wolf, uh, got a hold of my music and contacted me. And if you know anything about uh, Peanut Butter, he doesn't want anything that's commercial. He wants music that has uh, a certain, you know, texture to it that has it's, has some meaning even in the fun stuff he doesn't want it to just be the you know idiotic stuff and so if you go on his website right now it'll actually say I'm looking for music that's not the normal and so I fit that group and there's a lot of people that follow him and as a result um, he exposed me to that following and so I'm I'm now in the under the uh, Peanut Butter Wolf, Chris
0: Manick, Umbrella. How, how did Francois Dubois, it, it's a bit like um, all of those rock and roll and musical greats that have these alter egos. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking a little bit about these dualities. Mm-hmm. So who is Francois Dubois and where did that pseudonym or alter ego come from? It came from Tracy McCants,
1: one of my students at Burke High School, and I was teaching uh, 12th grade world history, and he would always refer to me as your boy. Your boy this, your boy, your boy, your boy, your boy, your boy. Well, one day he says, I'm going to give you a stage name. I'm a, he said, I'm going to f- take some French and kind of jazz it up, and he changed your boy to ja boy. And then um, instead of Frank... Franklin, your boy, Frank, your boy, it became Francois, your boy, Francois, your boy.
0: So it it all came from a student. And tell me more about this musical career. Did you tour? Where did you perform? Who were your influences?
1: My influence is Sly and the Family Stone, very heavily Sly, Uh, Larry Graham, uh, um, David Bowie, um, Curtis Mayfield. And every one of those that I named are consciousness writers. And uh, so I learned the art of social consciousness from those people. And um, if I had to go with a a newer uh, singer that younger people would identify with, it would be uh, India Arie. Again, her music is very socially conscious. Now, that doesn't mean that everything I do is serious. Uh, I have a, a CD out called uh, The Cornhusker Kid. And uh, it's it's all about Cornhusker football. It's fun, and it's all rap. Even though I'm not a rapper, Cornhusker Kid is rap. So I, I can have a fun side. But uh, basically, the, the singing has only been and the performing has only been in this area. Uh, I have never had the luxury of going out on the road or anything like that. I have had the luxury, however, of getting music played in other states.
0: On Freedom Fighter, which is a compilation of some of your earlier, your earlier work. Yes. On the sleeve notes to this compilation, Freedom Fighter, it says that your music is entertaining yet educational and spiritual without being too preachy. And I think you've touched on the use of music and you've talked about consciousness artists. You use music both for fun and personal pleasure, of course, and for entertainment, but also to share a message. And I wonder if um, you might talk a little bit more about these motivations into uh, music. The two main motivations,
1: um, probably three motivations. One is therapy. Uh, Without music, I would have... I, would, I wouldn't be here today. I would have checked out. So music is what kept me alive. It kept me sane in a very insane world. Uh, number two, um, I really do believe in social justice. And uh, I may not be um, the kind of social justice that, uh, let's say, Bernie Sanders is, but I am very much a social justice person in terms of uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Um, I, and then the, the other motivation is that I actually use it to teach. So every semester when I teach a race relations class, I'm playing some of my music to, this, to the kids. And I give this stuff away as, as door prizes. We'll have Cultural Jeopardy, for example and one of the teams is going to win, so there might be three teams or ten people, and the winning team gets, gets the old Ballhead Professor's CD, and they usually tend to want it. Because it, it, I think people see it as a, a collector's piece. It's not a piece where it competes with today's music. It's not meant for that. It's meant to be more of a collector's piece slash educational piece.
0: So for the listeners, I, I want to be clear... That there will be uh, uh, competition for a free copy yes. of this CD. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Franklin, for offering you that. You bet. And by way of teaser, I want to point out that the cover art, the rear cover art, features uh, an image of you, Franklin. And I, I don't know what the current vernacular would be, but I'm going to say "bust in a move." <laughs> <laughs> I am.
1: I am a good dancer. Then my my wife says I am, and certain people say I am. I remember when we did the um, um, what is that called? Um, it's one of the rites of, of uh, passage for the black community. Uh, Skipping my mind right now, but they always have the older the older men do a dance, and and so they put me front and center because they said that I was the show piece. So that was a nice compliment. Yes.
0: So I'm wondering if we might try two ways for, which would mean two CDs if you're up for that. Sure. Two ways perhaps for people to win a copy of Franklin Thompson's compilation, Freedom Fighter, the early years. One is to call in after the show broadcasts, calling in at 402, Two three five two two zero one, 2201 and the other way is to go to the show's Facebook page and the show's Facebook page can be found by searching Lives Radio Show on Facebook.com the first person to write in with a Martin Luther King quote will win a copy of your CD that sounds like a good plan what should we play out to?
1: Uh, American Dream number one and tell us why Uh, It talks about uh, Martin Luther King's dream of how we need to come together. There's far more that makes us uh, a nation that unifies us than what divides us. And so the the song American Dream is saying that we have to highlight the good that's within us and use that to unify us, not uh, take little picky things here and there and then exacerbate them and then boom, we're not even talking to one another. So that's, that's what that song is about.
0: I really appreciate that recommendation. It is perfect for today. As we noted, we're recording on Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday. Franklin, thank you so much for being on the show. I've actually really, really enjoyed talking with you. You bet. Uh, feel free to call me back and i have other albums
1: with, with other things to say.
0: To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's Radio Show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show.
1: As a young boy, had of a dream.
0: Again, Franklin, thank you so much for being on the show. You bet. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTisick. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.